welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Last month, the Supreme Court refused to hear a case that threatened to bring the field of human embryonic stem cell research to a grind. Their decision ended a legal back and forth that had been waging since 2009. The case is called Shirley v. Sibelius. The plaintiffs were two scientists, Dr. James Shirley and Dr. Teresa Daescher. Dr. Shirley is an adult stem cell researcher at Boston Biomedical Research Institute, who once went on a hunger strike when MIT denied him tenure. Dr. Teresa Daescher is a cellular physiologist with an impressive record in the biotech industry, including the foundation of her own private firm, AVM, which stands for Ave Maria. A devout Catholic, Daescher is dedicated to adult stem cell research to develop alternatives to the use of embryonic stem cell lines. The defendants were Kathleen Sebelius, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Francis Collins, Director of the NIH, and both of their institutions. But both parties were more complex in actuality. When the case originated, the group of plaintiffs was much broader, about which we'll learn more soon. And at one stage of the proceedings, the case seriously threatened an entire scientific community. So this is a case of trying to make law to control science, but of course science doesn't stand still. Science comes up with new developments which are never contemplated at the time the law was written. That was Dr. John Murray, a lawyer with a PhD in genetics. He'll be helping to understand the case from a legal perspective. The reason the recent uh, Shirley Sebelius challenge was potentially going to be very bad for us, uh, what, what the case was trying to do was to pre prevent even working on the product of the, the destruction of those embryos. And so that, that would have been a serious uh, drawback. So, very frankly, we're pleased that the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. That was Dr. Chris Henderson, director of the Columbia Stem Cell Initiative, co-director of the Project ALS Lab for Stem Cell Research, and scientific director of Target ALS, a consortium of some 18 labs working on treatments to LAS, more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. We'll be hearing lots from him about his research, as well as the future of stem cell science and cell-based therapies. But first, let's be clear about what stem cells are. A normal cell, a liver cell, for instance, if, if the, when the liver grows in size, what happens is that one liver cell will divide into two liver cells, and those can divide and give four, and so the, the tissue grows. And that's true in many different tissues. Uh, a stem cell does something rather different. So a stem cell can also divide, and it will divide, and it will make one cell of a particular tissue, for instance, but the, the other daughter cell will be a stem cell. So there's one stem cell left. And it can keep on doing this for many generations. So the stem cells are not depleted, but it can generate many different cells. So it's a bit like um, uh, if you've got some money, um, spending the interest but keeping the capital. What stem cells can do, you can reinvest that capital because the stem cells can then decide to give another type of cell, for instance. So what an embryonic stem cell can do is that it can make any type of cell in the body. It can make tooth, bone, nerve cells, heart cells, hair, whatever we like. All of those are made from embryonic stem cells. Adult stem cells that we have naturally in our body are more specialized. So we have adult stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells, they're called, that make the cells in our blood. 
we have stem cells in our brain that are probably involved in learning and brain maintenance and in different tissues. But naturally, those cells, a brain stem cell, will not make a blood cell. And so the difference is really that the adult ones play a very important role, but they, they have a much more narrow range of cells they can make. So we call the embryonic stem cells totipotent, but all-powerful. And the other stem cells can be pluripotent because they can make several things, but not everything. What determines what sort of cell an embryonic stem cell will become? What determines is really the, the signals that they're exposed to. And so as, as the embryo develops, they first need to make embryonic tissues, and then um, they, they'll make, for instance, the nervous system and the heart. And uh, that occurs because different cells receive signals from the surrounding tissue. And that's well understood in some cases. It's still a bit of a mystery in others. And that difference is really very relevant to the use of embryonic stem cells in the lab because one of the main reasons that people want to have access to embryonic stem cells is to make tissue in the laboratory. And for a tissue where the developmental biology is well understood, so we know the nature of those factors and when they need to be applied, then we can actually do that in the culture dish. So in, in the area I work in, we know very well how the motor neurons, which are the ones which move the muscles and are situated in the spinal cord, we know very well how they develop normally. And by applying what's been learned from that to embryonic stem cells, either human or mouse in the culture dish, we can make lots of neurons. But other cell types, like muscle, for instance, we know a lot less about, and it's still a puzzle how to make them. There's also a class of stem cell called induced pluripotent stem cells. First produced by Nobel-winning scientist Shinya Yamanaka in 2006, these can be made in a lab by genetically manipulating skin cells. We'll learn more about these a little later. The reason Shirley V. Sebelius was so worrying to the research community was that one of the judges to hear it, D.C. District Judge Judge Lamberth, issued a legal interpretation that, had it stood, would drastically curtail the field of human embryonic stem cell research. The law in question is called the Dickey-Wicker Amendment, since it came into place under the Clinton administration, it has been taken by presidents, Congress, and lawyers to mean that federal funding can contribute to research on pre-existing stem cell lines. It can't contribute to the creation of further lines, which would involve present-day destruction of more embryos. Judge Lambert's reading of the law considered all research involving any human embryonic stem cells to be beyond the pale of government funding. Dr. Murray will explain how interpretation of the Dickey-Wicker Amendment is both crucial to this case and actually quite complicated. Okay, so the Dickey-Wicker Amendment, it's quite a, it's an interesting thing because the, the background of it is that this is back in the mid-90s, uh, I think around 94, but basically the NIH, NIH produced a paper suggesting that they would start funding research on fertilized embryos because um, obviously it would be scientific interesting, maybe there could be all kinds of things could be learned, and Congress panicked about it and then... What the Dickey-Wicker Amendment basically is, is on the appropriations bill to fund the NHS, just the, the normal funding bill, they, the Congress can add in riders to it saying, we're granting these funds, but they're not to be used for this or that purpose. And the Dickey-Wicker Amendment is basically uh, a short couple of paragraphs saying you cannot use the NIH funds to create fertilized embryos for research or to do research in which uh, fertilized embryos are destroyed or you know, things are derived from them or there's some sort of knowingly they're put at risk. 
and that was passed in 1996. And the um, the thing that makes really sort of interesting now in terms of legal terms is in 1996 there were no human embryonic stem cell lines, so in 1998 they figure out how to make uh, guys at Wisconsin, Thompson figures out how to make human embryonic stem cell lines. And now that creates a situation where, okay, the Dickey Wicker Amendment is still in effect. That's the law of the land in terms of how the funding goes. But when it was written, it was never contemplated that there would be these human embryonic stem cell lines. And the initial, the Clinton administration initially looked at it and their their lawyers looked at it and said, okay, in our opinion, you know, the Dickey Wicker Amendment, and this is actually crucial in this case as well, looking at the parsing the language, they said, well, it says research in which embryos are destroyed, and that's present tense. It's not past tense. If they, It doesn't say research in which embryos were destroyed. or so, so that means it must be talking about research directly where you have the embryo in front of you and you do something to destroy it. But that doesn't mean if somebody else somewhere who wasn't privately funded destroyed it earlier on and you get the embryonic stem cell line, you can do work on the embryonic stem cell line, and that's how they choose. They chose to interpret it. Um, and then George W. Bush gets elected, and, of course, he has a, a large part of his party um, are very against any kind of embryonic stem cell research. And he had a very difficult decision to make, and... His basic sort of like, it's really sort of like the judgment of King Solomon trying to cut down the middle was to say, you know, you can do the studies on embryonic stem cell lines, but they have to be created before I made this decision. No, no new ones, uh, which didn't really please anybody, I don't think. It's one of these things, there was a, an equal distribution of annoyance about his decision, such that it basically stood as people just kind of got on with it. And then, you know, President Obama got elected and issued his own executive order, basically saying, you know, the, the president doesn't have the power to overrule the law, but in terms of the executive, you can say, you know, you go back, have a look at the law, and expand what you're doing to the fullest extent you can under the law. And so, again, they went back and they said, well, if we look at this, you know, we can interpret this in a way to be consistent with the law, which says that, you know, we could have new embryonic stem cell lines made, as long as they're made by somebody else that we're not funding. If they turn up in our lab after they've been turned into human embryonic stem cell lines, then we can do research on them. And basically what happened in the case with the lower court is um, the D.C. Uh, district judge looked at this, and I think he applied, he basically applied a layman's plain language reading of the terms and said, look, you make a em human embryonic stem cell line, how can you really be saying that that's some way detached to destroying the embryo in the first place? And he took out a dictionary definition of research and says it seems plain that these are connected, so you cannot possibly do any research. And then it went up to the circuit judges, and I think the, the dissent in the circuit had a great statement saying it was linguistic jujitsu was what was being practiced, and that I mean, that's really the case. It's legal reasoning. That's what lawyers do. They look very closely to read the text in a situation like that, and they come up with divisions like, well, this is present tense. That means anything in the past tense is okay because it doesn't specifically say that, and, you know, that's that's how the law works. And likewise, at the appellate level, they, they are trying to be very careful, I think, as judges to respect what Congress has decided. And a key part of their decision in applying that interpretation was basically that if Congress, after human embryonic stem cell lines have been discovered, 
had decided, well, actually, we don't want people doing research on this. They could have revisited the Dickey Wicker Amendment and said, okay, we're not going to change this to make this clear. We, we don't mean any of this new stuff going on either. They've never done that. In fact, they've just kind of kept on going it. And in fact, of course, George W. Bush, he said you, you could use the ones in the past, but I mean, he, he appeared happy with this research to be ongoing. So the only change here is that Obama's come in and made a change saying you can make, use new lines. Um, the court basically respected that. Can you walk us through some of the highlights of this case? I think in legal terms, the, the case was actually pretty straightforward in, in terms of how it advanced. The, I mean, the origins of the case are interesting. If you read, I mean, based on the public statements and public record of things that have been written about them, you have uh, originally embryos were listed as one of the plaintiffs, just sort of embryos in general. There was... Uh, couples who wanted to adopt frozen embryos were part of the plaintiffs as well. Uh, and then, of course, you had these um, individuals, um, um, Shirley, who uh, has been at MIT and was quite controversial there, and uh, Rasher, who's uh, I, there's actually a very interesting, seems like a very interesting woman, had quite a, a distinguished career in sort of commercial biotech, worked for some pretty major firms, and now has her own little sort of biotech which he's trying to get off the groins. And the AVM and AVM Biotech starts for, stands for Ave Maria, which, you know, so she's coming from sort of a, a very religious sort of standpoint while at the same time being somebody with uh, obviously quite a quite a distinguished career as a commercial you know, scientist. Um, so there's sort of quite an interesting combination of people initially. And then in, t- in terms of how it advanced legally, I think in legal terms, the case shows the system working whether in policy terms that results in good things. But in terms of what happened, I mean, initially you have them filing the complaint and the district judge initially just showed them the door, said you don't have standing. And standing is quite important in this case. Standing is a concept which the law has. basically comes from the Constitution, Article 3 of the Constitution. says, you know, the courts deal with cases or controversies. You know, they're not a debating society just because you feel very strongly about a subject doesn't mean you get to go to court and get an opinion on it. You actually have to have a a legally cognizable injury to you caused by the person that you're going to court with. And so basically said you don't have any standing. I don't even have to talk about your preliminary injunction motion because of that. And then that was the initial appeal to the D.C. Circuit, which is the, the court above and they looked at that and they came to the conclusion that, um, well, actually it was interesting, they, they immediately dropped embryos and the potential adoptees and they just went to the D.C. Circuit and said the two scientists involved had standing because they wanted to do adult stem cell research. And an interesting wrinkle based on the public record is actually um, Dresher hasn't actually, she says she's going to apply for NIH grants uh, for adult stem cell research and uh, Shirley has applied but I believe, based on the record, hasn't actually even been granted any as yet. So, at any rate, the the DC Circuit decided that because there is potentially a competition created by an expansion of embryonic stem cell research, therefore they had standing. They could say we are injured by this change in the guidelines, and therefore you have standing. So then it went down to the district court judge again, who now said, "Okay, now I have to look at what you guys are asking for the preliminary injunction." And I think that's the point at which from a wider sort of policy perspective, certainly from the scientific community, the, the law all suddenly became very scary because the, basically the D.C. District Court judge bought the argument, which was that, you know, they if you take a plain reading of the law here, it means that you shouldn't be able to do any kind of research on human embryonic stem cell lines. 
and uh, he granted the preliminary injunction, which got appealed immediately to the DC Circuit. Um, they took it very quickly and turned it around and said, no, you, the lower court judge has misinterpreted the law here. Here's what the law actually says. And then it came back to him. And again, him he's the lower court judge. So again, he said, okay, this is what the law is now, whether I like it or not, or whether I agree with it. And so then he said, that resolves the case. You know, he's you no... Know, he basically dismissed their their case and said that uh, you know they 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 were wrong on the fa- on the facts of the law, and then basically it's gone up, back up the appeal. DC Circuit said it reaffirmed itself, and they went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court simply refused to hear the case. As charged as the debate on embryonic stem cell research is, Dr. Murray does not believe that any of the judges involved were ideologically biased. The Supreme Court's decision not to hear the case does not imply anything about the judiciary's moral stance on the issue. Nothing should be read into the fact that the Supreme Court did not grant certiorari. Something like, I think it's like 1% or less of the cases that apply to be heard by the Supreme Court actually get heard by the Supreme Court. So all you can say based on the Supreme Court saying we're not, you know, we're refusing your petition for cert is that they're not going to hear it. By the way, certiorari is the writ that the Supreme Court issues to a lower court telling it that the Supreme Court is going to take a case. Judge Lambert's decision to grant an injunction on embryonic stem cell research was based on four criteria. One, the likelihood of success of the plaintiffs. Two, that without an injunction, the plaintiffs would suffer injury, which in this case was considered to come from competition with embryonic stem cell research grant seekers. Remember, Shirley and Daisha are both adult stem cell researchers. Three, that an injunction would not harm other parties. And four, that the public interest would be furthered by an injunction. Judge Lambert's position on all four points proved controversial, especially in weighing the balance of harm to various parties. However, Dr. Murray attributes this to lack of familiarity with the workings of scientific research grants and a face value interpretation of the Dickey Wicker Act. I think that was more just, uh, I mean, he's not necessarily, just because you're a judge doesn't necessarily mean you have huge vast knowledge of how NIH funding works and the people do have credible resumes as, as scientists in, in, in their background so and I think to be honest, the, the major thing which caused him to grant the preliminary injunction was not so much the balance of harm assessment it was his assessment of what the likelihood of success on the merits he just picked it up and read it and said well I think these people are right in their interpretation of the amendment and that's the law I, I would I would agree I think his balance of harm um, uh, interpretation which was criticized by the appeal court didn't reflect reality but I, I, I wouldn't necessarily infer that that was a sign of sympathy in his part I think it was just simply you know the judge ju- judges don't necessarily know are not omniscient they don't necessarily know everything about it and uh, I, th- I think I think that was a lesser factor in his decision based on what he has written I think it, was, it really comes down to different interpretations of what the what the actual legal language is what do you think have been the consequences of such prolonged legal uncertainty I think basically there's there's no good comes of having something like that because at the very least it has a chilling effect it's hard enough getting your grant money let alone you have this worry that somebody could bring a court case and suddenly there's an injunction you've no control over that you know the fact it's been resolved this way I think probably makes uh, Another legal challenge could come, but it would probably be shown the door immediately just based on what this case has already dealt with. But the issue, of course, is, you know, if there's a political changeover, it's entirely likely that, you know, if there's a Republican president, he would reverse Obama's executive order and at the least go back to the sort of status quo ante, which would, you know, George W. Bush's status quo. Although, I mean, 
it's hard to predict, but there's that, there's an air of uncertainty, basically, due to politics. They can't incentivize anybody to want to work on human embryonic stem cell lines, uh, having this kind of thing happen. And Dr. Henderson, have you or your colleagues been set back by these proceedings? I think we've been affected, but never stopped. And so the, the, the different legislations have had uh, different stances, but there's never been a total clamp down on embryonic stem cell research. I think it's important to say that we all do understand that the human embryonic stem cell is something we need to be careful with. You'll find no, no reasonable scientist who's opposed to careful regulation of limits of what can be done with them. Although we don't feel it's a moral problem to work on them because we're talking about very small balls of cells that are going to be destroyed for other reasons anyway. Why are embryonic stem cells important to use in your research? Because they just provide us with ways of doing things we could never think of doing before. So we work on uh, the spinal cord, which is the extension of the brain that goes down the back, and in particular diseases of that, like uh, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, it's better known as, in which a certain type of nerve cell called motor neurons, the ones that link the spinal cord to the muscles and allow us to walk, to breathe, to swallow, those in, the, in patients with Lou Gehrig's disease, those neurons start degenerating and they eventually die. And so the patients have a paralysis which will start focally, let's say, in one limb and gradually spread throughout the body until the, they can't breathe or swallow anymore. So it's a uniformly fatal disease for which we have no cure. And so um, there have been, over the years, many attempts to try and find uh, logical approaches to this. But one huge paradox, I think, is that although there have been many clinical trials, all of which have failed, not a single drug has ever been tested before going into patients on sick human neurons, the, uh, the cells affected in the disease. Now, if I told you that there was a cancer drug going into patients that hadn't been tested on human cancer cells, you would be very surprised. But it's been possible for a long time to take samples of tumors and to grow them up in the um, uh, in tissue culture dishes. We can't do that with the, uh, the central nervous system for two reasons. A, if I were to take a sample of your spinal cord, in doing so I would paralyze you, so that wouldn't be highly approved. And B, since nerve cells actually can't divide, so if I take a small sample, I can't make that into a bigger one. So for that reason, it's just human neurons and the of, of any type have just been not really accessible. And uh, the reason this has changed is the availability of the embryonic stem cells and what I'll tell you about briefly, which are iPS cells, which are in some ways their functional equivalent, which um, pose less of an ethical problem. The reason that embryonic stem cells have helped is that we can take either human or mouse cells, expose them to the normal signals they're exposed to, and make them into motor neurons. So we can now make many, many billions of living human motor neurons and start studying those. And that's been just, uh, has changed the way we do research. We now have enough to do drug screening. We can do biochemistry in large quantities. And so, whereas before we had to isolate them painstakingly from small rodent embryos, now we have uh, access to far more materials. That's a, that is very good in itself, but alone it does not give us access to patients' neurons, which we wanted. And that's when this new discovery by um, um, Shinya Yamanaka, which was just recognized by the Nobel Prize, of iPS cells that came in. 
And so he showed that if you take a sample of skin and you put into the, you grow up the skin cells in a culture dish and you put into those skin cells just three or four genes that are normally expressed by stem cells, not only will those cells become much more like stem cells, they will forget they were skin cells, so they get reprogrammed in, in, a, in, in a way that's still not fully understood. And so these iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, can be made from uh, the skin of mice and also humans. And actually, with our collaborators at Harvard, we were the first to take uh, the skin of patients, in this case, patients with ALS, and to show that they could be re reprogrammed and we could make uh, motor neurons uh, from patients. And so now we can make similarly large quantities of these. And so what we're trying to do now is to use these to constitute models that we call ALS in the culture dish, whereby we can compare the behavior of motor neurons from a normally healthy individual and motor neurons from an ALS, look for differences between them, convince ourselves that those differences are related to the disease, and then find out what's happening in the neurons that they degenerate and find out ways of blocking it and therefore hopefully um, devise treatments that we can take back into the patient. What do you think are the prospects for stem cell-based treatments? I think it's important to say that um, the, the path to a treatment is always a long one because even after the discovery, there are the very necessary regulatory um, questions about safety and then the test of efficacy in the human patient, which fails more often than not. In the era I'm talking about, when the ALS is maybe one of the toughest challenges, we think that the, uh, the fastest route there is not to put nerve cells back in the patient's spinal cord. In the future, it would be great to think we're going to do that, but that raises many, many challenges for safety and feasibility. Uh, what we have favored is to say we're going to make a model of ALS in the culture dish, and I think within a year or two, we will have models that we all believe are valid for that. We're then going to use these to test uh, candidate drugs. That can, is hard to predict, but we need to leave another two, year, two, three years for that to be done properly. And then, if that's looking good, then not alone, probably with pharmaceutical companies, we go into the process of drug development in which those drugs get improved, they get tested, they get made into drugs that go, can go into the CNS, and they go through the standard process, which can take up to 10 years, can be faster in some cases. So um, I personally feel it's important not to overclaim in terms of the speed at which we can do things. It's better to go slowly and well than to make rushes for goal. In other disease areas and in other cases um, where the cells can be used directly to replace tissues, there are maybe faster routes, and I think those can each be discussed one by one. But what I think what we're trying to do at Columbia, and I know at other excellent institutions in New York, um, is to say we're, we're not afraid of saying we're going for clinical benefit, but we're saying every step of the way we're going to apply the rigor and careful approach that characterizes academic science, not to slow things down, to, but to make sure we're not just creating an edifice that won't uh, go for the full length. Can you discuss what have been and will be the implications of the availability of finite numbers of stem cell lines? Yes, so of course the private funding did and does help make those lines. 
to be honest, many of those lines were good lines, and we and others have worked with them. They were de derived in different institutions around the country and across the world. And it's interesting to think about the um, strengths and weaknesses of having more and more lines. One wants more and more lines if they're getting better, but to be honest, if we're talking about healthy control lines, having a restricted subset can be good in, in that if all researchers are including some of the same lines in their research, then it's more comparable. The, the list of approved lines have certainly changed and expanded under the Obama administration and different governments across the world are changing in different ways. So I think the move now is to really standardize these lines and to make sure they're always maintained in the highest quality and to introduce them into as many programs as possible. That's the embryonic stem cell lines. Most embryonic stem cell lines are not patient-derived because um, most diseases are not diagnosed very early on in the embryo. There are some exceptions and some very interesting models, and I think those are good. We want to keep on working on embryonic stem cells because they're the gold standard, and if we can do that for disease and healthy controls, that's even better. Uh, you know, the, the new challenge, and this isn't, um, uh, doesn't need to be addressed by the, um, the legal or federal funding issues, is with these iPS cells, which are not a problem for anyone in terms of uh, the moral questions they raise, but many and many of those are being generated and by very, very many different techniques. And so I think it's going to be interesting watching the community come together to try and, on one hand, expand because we need iPS cells from new diseases, different types of patients, better controls, and contract because we just can't have everyone working on a different cell type because then we won't be able to compare the data. So it'll be an interesting set of discussions within the community over the coming years, I think. Dr. Henderson also stresses that the contributions of private funding have been essential to the progress made in this field. When there was a period of government uh, restrictions, we were, as a community, really strongly supported by different foundations, individuals and, and agencies. And they, they've stepped in to cover the gaps uh, that a government couldn't fill, and they've also been major drivers in pushing stem cells uh, forward as, as a research tool. And so in New York, for instance, uh, we've uh, incredibly much benefited from support from Project ALS, uh, uh, from the New York Stem Cell Foundation, and from the Helmsley Trust, which gave us a big grant to um, help set up the Columbia Stem Cell Initiative and also for diabetes research. And uh, we've had amazing input from the New York State uh, Stem Cell Funding Agency, which is called NYSTEM, um, which has just changed the way that stem cell biology is done in the state, and in particular in New York City. Uh, how so? Uh, uh, just by setting aside funds that can be used specifically for stem cell research in a way that's not uh, restricted in the same way as the federal funding, and so they funded individual grants for people with promising projects that get reviewed very tightly, but it's good funding. They funded core facilities, so they put a lot of money at Columbia, for instance, into a facility that allows us to do high-throughput drug screening on stem cell models. They're funding consortia to take um, basic research into the clinic. And so their, their choices uh, really drive some of the way that the stem cell research is being done in New York State. Unfortunately, they're, they're very responsive to the community, listening to what people think should be the next steps. 
That's it for this installment of the Science in the City podcast. For more, check out scienceinthecity.org. And please feel free to email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening.